0: That's Science VS. New season
1: out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this investigation and trial, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and sexuality that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. On the night of May 4th, 2001... Newlyweds Bonnie Lee Bakley and Robert Blake ate dinner together at Vitello's, an Italian restaurant in the Studio City neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. It was one of Blake's regular haunts, even earning him an eponymous dish on the menu, fusilli e minestra alla Robert Blake. Normally when he came to Vitello's, he utilized the restaurant's valet service, Tonight, he parked his 1991 Dodge Stealth on the street, a block and a half away. After dinner, Blake and Bonnie headed to his car to drive home. But before driving off, Blake realized he'd forgotten something inside the restaurant. He left Bonnie to wait while he retrieved it, assuring her that he'd be right back. The next 10 minutes would change both of their lives forever. Blake returned to a horrific scene. Blood was everywhere. Bonnie had been shot twice and struggled with every breath. Blake frantically ran to a nearby house and they called 911. Blake found an off-duty nurse and enlisted her help, rushing her back to his car, pleading for her to do what she could to save his wife. But by the time Bonnie Lee Bakley reached St. Joseph Medical Center in Burbank at 10.15 p.m., less than 30 minutes from the time she'd been shot, she was dead. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast Original. Each week we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. First, we'll follow the police as they gathered evidence and testimony to build a case and charge a suspect. In our next episode, we'll see that evidence play out in the courtroom and understand how the jury reached their verdict. This week we're examining the 2001 murder of Bonnie Lee Bakley, we'll examine the investigation into her death, her colorful celebrity stalking past, and how police narrowed down their several suspects. Next week, we'll follow the resulting criminal trial, civil trial, and see for ourselves how the evidence matches up with the verdict. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. LAPD detective Ronald Ito arrived on the scene in Studio City just before midnight on May 4, 2001. He quickly got up to speed with the other officers, who had been working the area since they arrived around 10 p.m., They had already discovered a gun in a dumpster around the corner and believed it was the murder weapon. But the World War II era 9mm pistol had no serial number, which made it practically impossible to trace back to the owner. Ito noted that 68 year old Robert Blake was in hysterics. Three times he asked for a glass of water, drained it, then puked it out onto the grass. It was either very good or very bad acting from the television star. Ito couldn't decide which. From his career experience, Ito knew that more often than not, a husband was connected to his wife's murder, and Blake was the last one to see Bonnie alive. Ito had also read tabloid headlines about Blake and his recent baby mama drama with the victim, 44-year-old Bonnie Lee Bakley. He hoped the actor would cooperate with the investigation. He had a reputation as being a bit temperamental. In the five years since O.J. Simpson had been found not guilty, discussions of celebrity privilege had continued in the Los Angeles justice system. Ito was aware of the possible impact Blake's stardom from his days as TV cop Beretta might have on the case. The burden of proof was that much heavier. Every step would be by the book. Robert was still visibly shaken, but agreed to accompany Ito back to the police station for an interview. The detective noted that once in the car, Blake's demeanor was calmer. And by the time they reached the station, he was explaining in extensive detail all of the many reasons why several people had good reason to come after his late wife. Blake didn't mince words with the detectives. Bonnie Lee Bakley was a con artist. He claimed that she had been running a lonely hearts scam for 30 years, writing letters to single men around the country, sending them naked pictures, pretending to be in love with them, all in exchange for money. Well, she didn't outright ask for cash. Instead, she let her pen pals know how grateful she would be to them for a little monetary assistance. Bonnie would claim she was short on rent, or her cat was sick, or her car needed to be repaired. If they would just be so kind as to send her a few hundred bucks, Bonnie would fix her car and immediately drive to meet them. Then she described in graphic detail how vigorously she would thank them for their help. Though of course, she never did show up. Her next letter would say she got lost, or ran out of gas money, or the repairs cost more than she expected. If only they could send a bit more money, or even better, a credit card number. Robert Blake told Detective Ito that he didn't know about his wife's letter service until after they married in November of 2000. Bonnie had only recently relocated to Los Angeles, so they could raise their 11-month-old daughter Rosie together. Ito asked Blake to describe his relationship with Bonnie. How had they met? The pair were first introduced at comedian Chuck McCann's 64th birthday party in August of 1998. Another guest, screenwriter Will Jordan, had brought Bonnie as a date, but it was Blake that she left with. They drove back to her hotel in Hollywood. He said they did sleep together that night, but it wasn't a big deal. They started up a casual relationship. Bonnie, 42 at the time, lived in Memphis, Tennessee, but made frequent trips to Los Angeles to see 65-year-old Blake. In between visits, they talked on the phone and wrote letters. Regular letters, he stressed, not the dirty ones she wrote to schmucks. Bonnie told Blake then that she was on birth control, but he found out later that the pills she took were actually fertility drugs. By late 1999, she was pregnant. When Detective Ito asked Blake how he felt about the baby, Blake admitted that he had hoped Bonnie would get an abortion. Instead, she had the baby in June of 2000. They decided to get married a few months later, after hammering out a very aggressive prenuptial agreement. It precluded Bonnie from inheriting any of Blake's money or property at any point. She also signed a temporary custody agreement, granting Blake sole physical custody of their daughter. Bonnie's visits would be pre-scheduled and monitored. Blake assured Ido that he was glad now to have Rosie. She was a perfect little baby girl, and he loved her. But when he first found out Bonnie was pregnant, he had no interest in being a father again. He was 68 years old, with two grown children. He didn't need any more. This was why Rosie was now living with his daughter, 34-year-old Delina Blake. She had wanted kids of her own, but was unable to have any at the time. Now she had Rosie. It worked out for everyone. Ido asked Blake to walk him through the events of the evening. They went to dinner at Vitello's. Blake reported that before they left the house, Bonnie asked him to bring along one of his guns. She thought someone was stalking her and felt safer with his 38 nearby. They parked on the street, a little over a block away from the restaurant the hostess sat them in Blake's customary corner booth around 8.30 p.m. After they ate, Blake paid the bill, his receipt timestamped 9.23 p.m. But when they reached his car, he realized that he'd left his jacket and the 38 caliber handgun in the booth. He left Bonnie to wait while he went back to the restaurant to retrieve them. While there, he asked for two glasses of water and drank them both. When he got back to the car at 9.38 p.m., he found Bonnie had been shot twice. She was barely alive. Frantic, Blake ran to the nearest house and banged on the door. He had to try more than one house before someone would answer. When they did, he insisted that they call 911. Police registered the call at 9.40 p.m. Blake then ran back to Vitello's to see if there was a doctor present. Terry Lorenzo Castaneda, a nurse, jumped up from her dinner to help. But by the time they reached Bonnie, she was bleeding from her eyes, nose and mouth. Castaneda couldn't do anything. Then the lights and sirens arrived. By the time the ambulance reached the hospital at 10.15 p.m., Bonnie was dead on arrival. Blake then reiterated to Ito that Bonnie had pissed off a lot of people over the years with her letter scheme. She had plenty of reasons to think someone was following her. This was probably the work of some guy she bilked. Revenge. Ito wrote down the theory, but also noted how quickly Blake turned from visceral grief, moaning on the sidewalk, to trash-talking the deceased mother of his child. So far, it appeared to Detective Ito that Robert Blake had plenty of motive to kill his wife. And ample opportunity. He also had the means. Blake owned several guns in addition to the 38 caliber. But the forensics team found no significant gunpowder residue when they tested his hands, and no blood on his clothes. Bonnie was shot at point-blank range. It was unlikely that the shooter could have walked away free of any spatter. Frustrated, Ito sent Blake home. He knew he was missing something. He needed more information and more manpower. Ito reached out to another detective, Brian Tendall, to join the investigation. Together, the detectives spoke with Bonnie's younger sister in Dover, New Jersey, 39-year-old Marjorie Bakley. She had learned of the murder not even four hours after it occurred, when tabloid reporters arrived on her doorstep. Just after midnight on May 5, 2001, they asked her, who would have wanted to kill Mrs. Robert Blake? Marjorie told the gossip rags the same thing she later told detectives. It was Robert Blake. Simple as that. She said, quote, I didn't agree with what my sister was doing to him. There was a point when I felt sorry for what she was doing with the baby, but murder is wrong. There is a better way to deal with things." Detective Ito asked Marjorie to verify Blake's claims about the pregnancy. Was it true that Bonnie had intentionally become pregnant, contrary to Blake's wishes? Marjorie admitted that Bonnie had harbored the fantasy of marrying a celebrity for most of her life. When presented with the chance to finally bag a Hollywood man, she would have done whatever necessary, including getting knocked up. She tried to justify her sister's behavior, explaining that Bonnie's childhood was tumultuous. Their father was a drunk and molested her. Their mother was no better, a dour woman who referred to the children as stupid and ugly. She abandoned Bonnie at age 11, sending her to live with their maternal grandmother. It made Bonnie feel like no one wanted or loved her. Marjorie described their grandmother, Grammy Hall, as tight-fisted. She only bought secondhand clothes and didn't allow Bonnie to bathe daily, thinking it was a waste of water. Bonnie was teased at school for her old worn-out clothes and rat's nest hair. It made her all the more determined to prove the bullies wrong by becoming a famous star, or at the very least, adjacent to a famous star. It took Marjorie a minute to recount for Ito all of the celebrities Bonnie had chased over the years. She spent the summer she turned 20 in Graceland, trying to catch a glimpse of Elvis, But then he died the next year, in 1977. Dean Martin in the early 90s, before he died, Gary Busey, Chuck McCann, Chubby Checker, all of the Frankies, Valley, Sinatra, and Avalon. She followed some for a few months, others for years. Starting in 1984, Bonnie spent nearly two decades stalking Jerry Lee Lewis, ingratiating herself in the outer rings of his circle. She befriended roadies, bodyguards, even Lewis's wife's personal secretary, anyone who might help her get close. Bonnie even tried to claim in 1993 that Lewis was the father of one of her daughters, naming her third child Jerry Lee, spelled j-e-r-i-l-e-e. When she leaked the story to tabloids, the singer ordered a paternity test and cleared his name. Detective Tendall pointed out the similarity in Bonnie's tactics with Lewis and with Blake. Marjorie agreed. Her sister was a determined woman who knew what she wanted. Bonnie had once told her that being around celebrity made her feel better than other people, it made her forget about her time as the smelly little girl in old clothes. Ido asked Marjorie if she remembered the last time they spoke. She told him they talked for several hours the morning of the murder from 8 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. Bonnie was panicky, terrified of Blake, and certain he wanted to kill her, but was trying to play off her fear with humor. She instructed Marjorie which tabloid reporter she wanted to write her obituary and what headshots to use for the magazines. Ito asked why Bonnie thought Blake was after her. Marjorie said it came straight from the horse's mouth. Apparently, the night before her murder, they'd gotten into an argument. He told Bonnie, quote, I've got a bullet with your name on it, end quote. Bonnie insisted that she wasn't just some bimbo he could push around. She said, quote, I must be kind of smart. I got you to finally marry me. I got myself a movie star and nobody thought I could do it. End quote. According to Marjorie, Blake fired back, quote, Girl, you better remember who you are dealing with. I'll kill your ass. End quote. Coming up, Detectives Ito and Tendal learn more about Bonnie's letter scheme and try to connect the murder weapon to a suspect.
0: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be.
1: After a week of investigating, detectives Ron Edo and Brian Tendall weren't any closer to determining who had shot and killed 44-year-old Bonnie Lee Bakley on May 4, 2001. Several of Bonnie's friends and relatives pointed the finger at her husband, 68-year-old actor Robert Blake. But Blake insisted he was innocent, inside the restaurant at the time of the murder. Instead, he theorized that one of the lonely hearts Bonnie jilted over the years had finally come to take revenge. To help detectives follow this lead, he inundated them with dozens of boxes of evidence related to his late wife's con artistry. Upon inspection, it was quickly apparent to Ido and Tendal that Bonnie was running a postal porn enterprise. She had hundreds of clients in her files, broken down into four categories—young and rich, old and rich, doctors, and lawyers. She kept extensive notes on everyone she corresponded with, detailing which alias she used with them, sexual likes and dislikes, how much money they had sent over the years, and what kind of future prospects might be mined. One entry read, quote, he is old, dignified, a master mason, University Order of the Amaranth, thinks he is rich. He is a trustee of a firm and I would become the trust trustee if I married him, was going to send me $1,000 at one time." End quote. Before the days of the internet, she placed ads in the back pages of softcore porn magazines. One of them, in The Love Club, read, Beautiful girl, 23, brown eyes, five five, 120 pounds, very lonely, in desperate need to find someone to write to and talk on the phone and meet with soon. I'm in a hurry to meet a man to stay with. So please, no matter your age or how far away you live, I'm free to travel, are you? I promise to answer your letter the same day I receive it. Next to the copy was a naked photo of Bonnie, usually fondling herself, a promise of what was to come. As Ido and the other detectives cataloged the massive porn inventory, they discovered that Bonnie had a business partner — her ex-husband, Paul Garon. When detectives interviewed Garon, he told Ido that he and Bonnie got hitched in November of 1977, when she was 21 and he was 27. Their families didn't approve of the union. As it turned out, they were first cousins. Garan speculated that Bonnie liked that about their relationship because it was one more thing she had in common with Jerry Lee Lewis. Lewis had married his 13-year-old third cousin, Myra Gale Brown, in 1957. When Bonnie and Garan were first married, they lived in a trailer on Bonnie's grandmother's land in New Jersey. Their son, Glenn, was born in September of 1979. A daughter, Holly, followed two years later. The relationship was rocky. Garon told Ido that he didn't like sharing Bonnie with all those Johns, referring to the lonely hearts. But he told the detectives that Bonnie made more money from one letter than he did working all week. So how could he argue? He stayed home to raise the kids while Bonnie's expansive mail order income supported their family. She had set up mailboxes all over the country under several different aliases. When she ran out of variations of her own name, she stole the identities of her friends and relatives. Garan told the detectives that his wife actually had a keen insight as a pornographer. Sometimes she spread a dozen Polaroids out on the kitchen table to find the right one. He didn't like her doing it around the kids, but she insisted it was important to have a personalized touch. She knew when to be demure in her letters and when to be raunchy. She styled herself with wigs and makeup to appeal to a broad range of tastes. As her clientele expanded, she supplemented with a variety of models. While Bonnie was out on the road, checking one of her many mailboxes, or stalking one of her celebrity crushes, Garan stayed home and raised the kids, and dutifully copied scintillating form letters to be sent out. He stressed his role in the business was strictly administrative. They got a divorce in 1982, but Garan never moved out of their Memphis home. The detectives asked if he stayed in the house because he still loved Bonnie. Garan replied, quote, I don't know. At one time, maybe, you know, I stayed with her because I wasn't leaving my kids. I didn't stay with her. I stayed with my kids, end quote. He reported that soon after their divorce, Bonnie ratcheted up her scam tactics. She started running credit checks on her marks and broke them down into eight tiers. At the bottom were the low asks, a few hundred bucks here and there. Bonnie pushed the top-tier clients to name her the beneficiary of their life insurance policy, or leave her something in their will. Those men received extra special attention and in-person visits. For some, it included a walk down the aisle, if that's what it took to seal the deal. Garon recounted her week-long marriage to a man in his 80s in Florida. Bonnie drove out to Port Charlotte to see him, got hitched, then skedaddled a few days later. On her way out of town, she stopped by the bank and withdrew $350,000 from the man's account. Garan wasn't sure how many husbands Bonnie had after him. Eight for sure, including Robert Blake. He said, quote, but it could have been 100 for all I know. Ido asked Garan how he felt about the marriage to Blake. He shrugged. It was Bonnie's same old scam, just a bigger payday. She didn't love him. In fact, when Bonnie realized she was pregnant in the fall of 1999, she wasn't entirely certain Blake was the father. She'd also been sleeping with Christian Brando, the troubled son of actor Marlon Brando, hedging her bets on which celebrity she might be able to lock down. Bonnie had started writing Christian letters in 1994 while he was in prison for manslaughter. After Christian was released from prison in 1996, Bonnie, 40 at the time, continued to pursue a relationship, frequently making trips out to see him they started up a casual, physical fling that continued even while she was with Blake. When Bonnie gave birth in June of 2000, she initially named the baby girl Christian Shannon Brando. Once paternity testing determined that Blake was actually the father, she was renamed Rose Lenore Sophia Blake. Tendall asked Garon if he thought Christian Brando was jealous. Could he be responsible for Bonnie's death? But Garan didn't think so. After the paternity was decided, the relationship with Christian had ended on amicable terms. Garan chuckled to himself. Bonnie had asked his opinion several times which man she should settle on, Brando or Blake. He'd told her that Brando was a convicted murderer and therefore not the best option. He added, "She thought she'd picked the safe one." Ido asked Goran who he thought was responsible for Bonnie's death. He wasn't sure. He knew Bonnie was afraid of Blake. She'd told him as much. She was really scared of what he might do to her. But he also conceded that, as Blake suggested, Bonnie had done a lot of bad things. She was a crook, simple as that. He said, quote, I wouldn't exempt her own family, tell you the truth, end quote. Paul Goran also informed detectives Ito and Tendall that Bonnie taped most of her phone calls. There were boxes and boxes at their house in Memphis. Hundreds of recorded calls with all manner of people. It was a habit that started in her early celebrity stalking days. She reasoned that you never knew what a tape of the right person at the right time might be worth. Goran surrendered all of the recordings, labeled Blake, for police to review. He had already sold a few of the tapes to the National Enquirer. Ito would have to subpoena those. The recordings painted a very different picture of the contested pregnancy. Robert Blake wasn't just a reluctant father. He was furious about the baby. He had absolutely zero interest in raising a child with Bonnie Lee Bakley. When Blake received a letter in late 1999 telling him Bonnie was pregnant, he immediately called her and demanded she have an abortion. He screamed into the phone, You can't have a baby! When she resisted terminating, Blake revealed that he was suffering from cancer and in the process of chemo. He couldn't be a father. He was a dead man walking. But Bonnie didn't believe it for one second. Still, Blake insisted that she abort the pregnancy. He even suggested a specific type of pill he'd heard about from France. It would induce a miscarriage, even if she was a few months along. Bonnie refused. She couldn't do that. She said tearfully, quote, The thing is, I just, I just can't be that awful to kill it. But obviously you can, so that is just as bad, quote. Blake raged back at her, quote, You swore to me. You promised me. You promised. You said, Don't worry, Robert. No matter what, I will have an abortion. You never have to worry about me getting pregnant. I'll take the pills. I'll have an abortion. It's okay. Relax. Enjoy yourself. I care about you. And it was all a lie. And not a little lie. That's a big lie. That's a big, awful, mean, vicious lie. They don't get any worse than that end quote. Bonnie tried to calm him down. All she wanted was to be with him. If he didn't want a baby around the house, she could let her mother raise it. Blake scoffed. She was completely missing the point. He didn't want her to have the baby at all. He told her during the call, quote, I'm not the bad guy here. I didn't lie. I didn't cheat. I didn't hustle. I didn't do anything wrong, end quote. Bonnie sobbed on the other end of the line. She just wanted to be with him. She thought the baby would bring them closer together. Blake lost it on her. Quote, The one thing in the world you knew I was terrified of was anybody getting pregnant, and you did it deliberately. Why? Not because you wanted to be with me. It has something to do with some crazy stuff that's going on in your head that you want Robert Blake's baby. And that's all on you, baby. And you have to live with that. You schemed this whole thing." End quote. Also included in the box of Blake tapes was a conversation between Bonnie and her younger brother, Joey Bakley. The detectives reasoned that the tape was labeled Blake because that was who Bonnie and Joey were discussing on the call, even though his voice was not featured. Joey told Bonnie in the call that in October of 2000, Blake asked him to meet at a donut shop in Van Nuys. He had a job for him. Joey assumed he meant an acting gig, given Blake's history. Instead, he related to his sister, quote, the guy wants me to kill someone, end quote. Bonnie gasped on the other end of the line. She exclaimed, you're kidding. He was not. Blake offered him $10,000 to kill a man living in Rosarito Beach, Mexico. Apparently, he was an investment counselor who had swindled Blake and two of his friends before fleeing the country. On the tape, Joey said Blake gave him his private number, and if he was interested in the job, he would give Joey half the money up front and the rest when the job was done. As a show of good faith, Blake gave Joey $500 on the spot. Joey and Bonnie laughed at the absurd offer. Joey said, I took the money and put him off. But they met up twice more, Blake giving him a few hundred more dollars each time. By November, it became clear to Blake that Joey was never serious about it and cut ties. Bonnie asked how much money he'd earned total. Joey told her about $1,000. Bonnie cackled on the line. She said, that's more than I ever got out of him. Later in the recording, Joey warned his sister, Bonnie, honey, you'd better watch out. Blake's gonna get you. She giggled back and responded, don't you say that. On May 14, 2001, a stuntman named Gary McLarty walked into the North Hollywood police station. He told the desk officer that he had important information relating to Bonnie Lee Bakley's murder case. McClarty alleged that two months before Bonnie's death, Robert Blake had offered him $10,000 to kill her. Coming up, Detective Ito follows his new lead and unearths key evidence. Now back to the story. Ten days after 44-year-old Bonnie Lee Bakley's murder in Studio City, a key witness approached police with information. Stuntman Gary McLarty told Detective Ron Edo that Robert Blake had offered him $10,000 to kill his wife. Gary had worked with Blake on Beretta, but hadn't spoken to him in years. He had contacted him through a mutual friend, fellow stuntman Roy Snuffy Hambleton. Snuffy told him that Blake was interested in making a movie about off-road motorbike stunts. McClarty was intrigued by the idea. Snuffy gave him Blake's personal number and he reached out in early 2001. They met up on March 19th at Dupar's restaurant in Studio City, but instead of talking about making a movie, Blake asked him if they could go to his house. It was only a few blocks away. Blake needed to show him something. When they arrived, Gary said he got right to the point. They weren't making a movie. Blake instead showed him dozens of naked pictures and lurid letters. Blake confided that they belonged to his new bride, Bonnie. Apparently, Mrs. Robert Blake was a con artist who extorted lonely men for money. He described how Bonnie played him by getting pregnant, lying about taking birth control. McLarty told detectives that Blake took him to the guest house in the back of his property where Bonnie stayed. Blake demonstrated how easily the sliding glass doors could be popped off their tracks, allowing someone to break in. He told him, quote, she's killing me, so I want you to kill her. Blake told him it would be easy enough to, quote, bump her off while she was asleep. Or if he didn't want to do it locally, Blake knew plenty of secluded spots in the desert. He could drive her out to the Mojave, and McLarty could sneak up while they were camped out. Blake then showed him a 25-millimeter pistol that he described as unmarked. Blake eventually drove him back to Dupar's, McLarty still chewing over his thoughts. A few days later, Blake called, wanting to know his answer. McLarty told him no. He didn't want anything to do with a murder. Ito asked if he thought Blake had asked anyone else to do the job or was willing to take matters into his own hands. He wasn't sure, but McLarty felt like Blake was hell-bent that someone would kill his wife. It was just a matter of who said yes. He suggested that they talk to another stuntman, Ron Duffy Hambleton. Duffy was Blake's stunt double on Beretta. Though he initially denied any involvement with the actor, under the pressure of a grand jury summons, Duffy admitted that Blake had also offered him money to kill Bonnie Lee Bakley. Though apparently Blake had been more generous to Duffy, offering $100,000 for the crime. The rest of the details were familiar, Snuffy Harrison told Duffy that Blake was interested in making a movie and told him to call. Duffy told detectives that in mid-March, he met Blake in person, also at Dupar's. Duffy recalled that Blake wasn't happy when he brought a friend with him. He was another veteran stuntman who Duffy thought would be good for the movie, but Blake wasn't interested in talking to him. Instead, he asked if they could step outside. Blake asked Duffy to come back to the house and once again displayed the trove of dirty letters and pictures revealing Bonnie's crimes and insisting that something had to be done. Duffy said that Blake was visibly upset talking about his situation. He worried that his daughter was going to have an effed up life and end up a porn star. It was clear to Duffy how much hatred Blake felt toward Bonnie. He wanted her dead. And he was willing to pay $100,000 to Duffy for the job. Then Blake showed him a gun and described it as untraceable. Officer Tendall asked Duffy if he accepted Blake's offer. He didn't accept, but he didn't decline. He told Blake he needed to think about it. They left the house, and Blake took him on a quick drive around the neighborhood pointing out a few places that he and Bonnie frequently went, including Vitello's. He pointed out secluded spots where Duffy could lie in wait. Blake would park the car, they'd get out, and then pop, pop, no more Bonnie. Duffy said that Blake then drove him back to Dupar's. He still didn't give him an answer, yes or no, but he did advise Blake to purchase a prepaid phone card, they should talk more about his plan without leaving a record of the calls. Ultimately, after a few more conversations, Duffy rejected the offer. He'd recently dealt with prostate cancer and leukemia. He wasn't sure how long he had to live, probably not long enough to spend the $100,000, and he wasn't sure he wanted Bonnie's ghost haunting him for the last few months of his life. Blake tried to convince him promising to take care of his family after he'd gone. But Duffy stood firm. They parted ways. Ito asked Duffy why he didn't come forward sooner, after he found out about Bonnie's murder. Duffy was afraid of reprisals. He knew Blake fancied himself a real tough guy, and tough guys had a way of dealing with informants. He said he would be a, quote, dead duck for being a snitch. With the development that Robert Blake was potentially soliciting for someone to whack Bonnie, Detective Edo considered a few pieces of evidence in a new light. 44-year-old Earl Caldwell had worked as Blake's assistant and bodyguard for the last two years. At six feet tall and 250 pounds, he was incredibly imposing, the perfect counterpart to the diminutive five-foot-four Blake. However, Caldwell was supposedly out of town at the time of the murder on May 4, 2001, visiting family in San Mateo, California. Therefore, it wasn't likely he was the shooter. But now that Ito knew Blake suggested to McLarty killing and burying Bonnie in the desert, it gave him context for a list of supplies police had found in June of 2001 when they searched Caldwell's Jeep. Caldwell had scrawled on a piece of paper two shovels, small sledgehammer, crowbar, 25 auto, get blank gun ready, old rugs, black duct tape, Drano, pool acid, lie, plant. It was very circumstantial, but it painted a sinister picture. This was a supply list for murder and disposal. Blake's suggestion to McLarty about going to the desert and sneaking up on them while they camped out also made Ito rethink some of Bonnie's sister's statements. Marjorie Bakeley had told him that in early April 2001, Blake invited Bonnie on a trip. He wanted to start in Phoenix and travel up the Colorado River to Lake Havasu, camping along the way, spend some time in the casinos, enjoy the sunshine. When he called it a late honeymoon, Marjorie said she knew there had to be some kind of catch but Bonnie was swept up in the idea. She met Blake in Blythe, California, on April 19th. Earl Caldwell also accompanied them. From Blythe, they went to Parker, Arizona, where they stayed at the Blue Water Inn and Casino. They spent a few days there, going fishing, boating, and gambling. Then they continued in Blake's camping van to Laughlin and Bullhead City, following the path of the river through the National Park. Marjorie related to Ito a fantasy that Blake had supposedly described to Bonnie. He wanted her to take a shot of tequila, French kiss him, and then perform oral sex. Bonnie wasn't much for tequila, so she negotiated for rum, but ultimately agreed. That night, while they camped on the bank of the Colorado River, Bonnie and Blake played out the scenario. Then in the middle of their tryst, Caldwell stumbled out of the bushes. He told Blake he was going to be sick and started to vomit. Blake apparently leapt up, half naked, and ran over to Caldwell to comfort him. Bonnie told her sister that Blake rubbed Caldwell's back and told him, it's okay, it's okay, don't worry about it. I'll have somebody else do it. That was when Bonnie noticed Caldwell was holding a gun. Bonnie, bewildered by the whole situation, wrote it off as a sex thing at first. Blake was an odd duck, and Caldwell went everywhere with him. Marjorie explained Bonnie thought everything was about sex, it was just how she was wired. But after the camping trip, Bonnie came to the realization that Caldwell was supposed to kill her that night, while Blake provided a distraction. He just hadn't been able to go through with it. Marjorie told Ido that she advised her sister to pack up immediately and leave Blake's house. She said, quote, "I asked her why in the world she was staying with him, and she told me she just wanted to be happy in her life for a change." End quote. Bonnie also told her best friend Judy Howell about the failed assassination in the desert. She similarly believed Blake was responsible for Bonnie's death. Howell and Bonnie met in 1985 during her Jerry Lee Lewis days. Howell was Lewis's wife's personal secretary. They became close friends over the years, often taking spur-of-the-moment trips together. Bonnie would pay for everything and get them into all sorts of wild situations. The Bonnie that Howell knew was generous to a fault. She said, quote, "If she had a dollar, fifty cents of it was yours." End quote. Howell told Ido about a trip Bonnie took to Los Angeles in the first week of September 2000. Rosie Blake had been born in June of 2000 in Little Rock, Arkansas, and Robert Blake hadn't had a chance to meet her yet. Bonnie felt like Blake's reticence towards fatherhood had lessened. He even spent $1,000 on outfitting a nursery. They were going to try raising Rosie together. But the day that Bonnie arrived in Los Angeles, she was arrested by police. She was on parole back in Arkansas for fraud and identity theft charges. She wasn't supposed to leave the state. Someone had notified her parole officer. The police put Bonnie on a plane back to Arkansas and Rosie stayed with Blake. He immediately brought the baby to his grown daughter, Delina. She started raising Rosie as her own as Bonnie was legally required to remain in Arkansas. When Bonnie's parole was up in March of 2001, she made the journey back out to Los Angeles so that she could assume her rightful position as Mrs. Robert Blake, and their little family could be together. However, Rosie remained with Delina. Bonnie was only allowed to see her baby a handful of times, and all of their visits were supervised. It drove Bonnie crazy. She'd ask Blake daily when she'd be able to see her daughter, but he constantly put her off. On April 30th, 2001, Judy Howell and Bonnie talked for four and a half hours, plotting ways to kidnap Rosie and smuggle her back to Memphis. Judy told her, quote, you go see the baby Thursday night and insist on taking her home with you. If they resist, Go outside and call the police. They'll let you take your own baby, end quote. Judy surmised that Blake somehow overheard the conversation. Bonnie had had suspicions at one point that he'd bugged her phone after he mentioned something to her that she was certain she'd never told him. Hearing their plans to take Rosie must have spooked him, giving him the push he needed to take action. By the end of the week, Bonnie was dead. In the 11 months following Bonnie's death, detectives Ron Ito and Brian Tendall interviewed over 150 witnesses and cataloged nearly 900 pieces of evidence. At 5.30 p.m. on Thursday, April 18, 2002, they arrived at Robert Blake's home to place him under arrest. They had to wait almost an hour at the house for Blake's daughter, Delina, to get home and stay with Rosie. Officers simultaneously arrested his bodyguard, Earl Caldwell. They were held in jail over the weekend. On Monday, April 22, 2002, Blake was arraigned and charged with one count of murder with special circumstances, two counts of solicitation of murder, and one count of murder conspiracy. Special circumstances are applied to murder charges that are particularly heinous and therefore warrant the death penalty or life in prison without the possibility of parole. Blake was accused of lying in wait to kill Bonnie. Earl Caldwell was charged with one count of murder conspiracy. Both men pleaded not guilty, on all counts, and Robert Blake hired celebrity attorney Harland Braun to defend him. Blake hired a separate lawyer for Caldwell and covered all of his bodyguard's legal expenses, including posting his $1 million bail. Blake's Special Circumstances designation also made it more difficult to obtain bail, and therefore he remained in the LA County Jail, waiting for his preliminary hearing in the fall. Again, the talking heads drew comparisons between Robert Blake and O.J. Simpson. Would this be a tale of Hollywood justice? Los Angeles District Attorney Steve Cooley was determined not to let that happen. The evidence told a clear story about Robert Blake's means, motives, and opportunity. Cooley had everything he needed to secure justice for Bonnie Lee and send her murderer to prison for the rest of his life. Thanks for listening to Not Guilty. We'll be back Thursday with our next episode on Robert Blake. We'll cover his criminal trial and the potential misconduct of the LAPD during their investigation. We'll also cover the civil suit brought against Blake by Bonnie's children and the aftermath of each case. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at ParCast Network. In the meantime, based on the evidence presented, decide for yourself. Was Robert Blake responsible for the murder of Bonnie Lee Bakley? And will the jury agree with you? Find out next week. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Not Guilty is written by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson.